Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, being full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So this is the longest speech in the book of Acts by far. And it's important that we recognize that both the content of the speech, what's being said, and the result of the speech, how it impacted those around him, both those things are important, and therefore we're going to look at them at two separate weeks. It's important because what Stephen says, he says at a place in time when his life is on the line. If you remember who Stephen was from last week, Stephen was one of the the men that was chosen by the church to make sure that the daily food distributions were going out among God's people, specifically this group of Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Jesus who were being neglected. We talked about that last week. Stephen was one of these guys that says of Stephen last week, he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. This week, he's full of grace and power. And this Stephen is the Stephen that these guys are resisting. And this Stephen is a Stephen who decides, okay, my life might be in a line, but these hard-hearted religious people need to hear about God's grace for them. And so I'm going to take this risk. And so I want to talk about seven ways that their hard-heartedness showed itself. And this is one of those sections, i got to say, I really wrestled with this. You can ask Sarah, I'm going, man, how do I teach this in a way that doesn't lose its sting, but doesn't leave us all just flat and condemned? Because i got to say, as I was reading this, I was saying, God, man, I feel more like these religious leaders than I do like Stephen. How easy is it for us to harden our hearts against God? And so as we see how Stephen reacts to this, and we see how Stephen addresses this, I hope we see our own hearts, but as I prayed more than that, that we see God's heart of grace towards us. The God who doesn't ignore or doesn't downplay the danger of the hardness of our heart, that same God says, I want to give you a new heart. I'm in the heart transplant business. So let's check this out. Seven things. You guys ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. First, we want to see the Stephen they disputed. We just read in verses 8 through 10 how Stephen exemplified grace and power. Grace, listen, is God's undeserved favor. He is demonstrating that he recognizes that the power he has, the ability he has is from God, not from him. In fact, when it says power here, it's specifically talking about the, the, the kind of power that only God can give, the kind of power that only God can exercise through 
through someone who believes. And what's interesting here in verse 10, we, we see that these that are disputing him, this kind of synagogue of the freedmen, this is probably, these were probably Hellenistic Jews like we talked about last week. These were probably those, these didn't believe in Jesus, obviously, but they were Hellenistic Jews that had been scattered before, had absorbed Greek culture, had now come back to Jerusalem, and they're in this, what's called the synagogue of the freemen. They were probably scattered and made slaves, and then when they gained their freedom and they moved back to Jerusalem, now they're in this synagogue of the freemen. But these are people that are culturally like Stephen, and they probably even got to know him as Stephen is going around their people, the Hellenists, and distributing food. As he's giving away food, and as he's ministering to people, and as he's listening to them, and praying for them, and sharing the gospel with them, they're seeing miracles happen. They're probably seeing healings. They're probably seeing God doing radical things like, like, like just repairing families, or, or, or seeing God provide in supernatural ways. They're seeing signs and wonders, it says, and they go, whoa, wait a second. Where's this coming from? We appreciate the kindness that you're showing, but where's this coming from? And Stephen starts saying, well, this is coming from Jesus. It's Jesus who does these things through us. And so what maybe started as discussion turns into debate. Debate goes into dispute. Dispute goes into threat. Threat goes into violence and arrest. And so it's interesting that, that Stephen's in this place. And it's interesting it says in verse 10, notice, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which, Steve, uh, which with Stephen was speaking. The issue here is that these guys started the conflict, but God gave Stephen the power by his Holy Spirit to speak with wisdom. I don't know about you, but when someone wants to conflict with me, I, I kind of, oh, my chest puffs out. I'm like, you want to go? You want to, that's, you want to go? That's kind of what, what goes through my carnal mind. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Stephen, his thoughts are, how can I share God's grace with these people? That's power. And so what does he preach? Verse 11, it says, listen, the email these guys secretly instigated people against Stephen. They accused him of blaspheming against Moses and God. And specifically, it says in verse 14 that, 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 uh, that they're accusing him. This is, remember, a false accusation. They're accusing him, that, saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. We're going to talk about the temple later on. And that, 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 that Jesus wants to change the customs of Moses. We're going to talk about Moses later on. These false accusations come to him, but this was not, this was not, listen, Stephen's message. Stephen's message was Jesus. He preached Jesus, and because he preached Jesus, he began to suffer like Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus tells us, listen, this is really important to know this. Jesus tells us, he teaches us to trust in him is to risk. To trust in Jesus is to risk your comfort and your safety and your place in society. Now, this does not mean that you should make yourself uncomfortable or obnoxious or try to cause problems in society at all. We should never be people who are doing that. But when we do good in Jesus' name, when we desire to share the goodness of Jesus, what happens is people will resist it. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also, uh, they will also keep yours. But all things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know God who sent me. Don't forget, Stephen's talking to religious people who claim to know God. 
Stephen was arrested because they saw Jesus in him. This is the Stephen they disputed. Well, again, Stephen, what does he do in, in, in answering this, these accusations in, in chapter 7, verse 1? It says that the high priest said, are these things so? And here's what Stephen says, verse 2. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He addresses them in the most honorable way possible. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. So we're going to see here, Stephen is going to talk about the Abraham they claim to follow. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land from the kindred and go into the land that I will show you. This is Genesis 11. You can look it up later. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and, he, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet God gave Abraham, that's the idea there, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, notice, but promised to give him, give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others and that they would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. And this is important because, listen, it's important because Abraham is known as the father of all who have faith. And Abraham didn't get what God promised him. All he got was the promise. He got the promise. And because he saw that God was going to fulfill his promise, he had to believe God was going to do this. Now, it's important to recognize, too, okay, that Abraham, what he was promised, what God promised Abraham was not just for Abraham. L listen to this. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. This is God's promise about seeing Israel blessed and from, through Israel, what does it say? So that you will be a blessing in all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made a promise to Abraham that was to be a blessing through his lineage, through the nation of Israel, ultimately through Jesus Christ to any who would believe. And yet Stephen's talking to people that would have said, yeah, okay, we get that, we believe that. And yet they actually weren't believing in the promise. They were saying, when do we get ours? Or this is ours in Jerusalem and we don't want anybody else to touch it. They didn't think that God's blessings were anything beyond them as religious people. Well, what happens in verse 7? It says, but I will judge the nation. This is God continuing to promise Abraham. But I will, God, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. That's one promise um, uh, being fulfilled. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob the twelve patriarchs. That is the twelve tribes of Israel. Here's the point, okay? This Abraham they claimed to follow, he was circumcised in hearts before he was circumcised in flesh. If you want to read about this, read Genesis 15 to 17. But you need to understand this. This is the whole point. Stephen's going to say, you believe in this Abraham, and you, you take pride in the fact that you and your sons have all been circumcised, but the circumcision of the flesh isn't what's important. Stephen's trying to point to this, trying to hint at this. 
Paul later on would write this in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul would write, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15. And Paul would say, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted of as gift, not as gift, but as his due. In other words, the person who's trying to be right with God by their works, they do works and say, Now God, you owe me. You guys ever done that? You ever been in that place where, God, I'll do this as long as you give me this. Then you do that thing, it doesn't come to pass. Come on, God, you owe me. God says, I won't relate to anybody like that. Paul goes on to say, and to the one who does not work, in other words, he's not relating to God by his works, but believes in him who justifies, that is declared innocence, what justifies means, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's the point, listen, Abraham, this Abraham they claim to follow, was declared innocent before God because he was he trusted God's promise. This is what Stephen's trying to get these religious people to see. He goes on, verse 9, from, the, from Abraham to Joseph, the Joseph that their ancestors had betrayed. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, that's the 12 tribes, of Israel, jealous, or the 12 sons of Israel, jealous of Joseph, that would have been the youngest son, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, now, now Stephen wanted to remind these religious people that it was jealousy that motivated the sons of Israel to betray their little brother Joseph. It was jealousy. This is also what the scripture records is why they betrayed Jesus. That's the connection he's trying to make. Look at verse 11. Now I'm going to read from verses 11 to 19. Stay with me. Follow with me. Look at your Bibles. It says, Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Now, remember, where's Joseph at this point? Joseph's in Egypt as a slave, right? He's then been exalted. But notice what it says, verse 13, And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father, and all kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and, his, he and our fathers, that is, the sons of Israel. And they were carried back into Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the, <coughs> excuse me, from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied into Egypt. That is, they went from 75 to a million plus in this 400 years that they're slaves. Until there, uh, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And this king dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now, this is kind of the beginning of the Prince of Egypt, which we'll talk about him in a second. But this is the point you need to understand. If you want to know Joseph's story, read from Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis 50. And when you look at Joseph's story, here's what you recognize, okay? What the sons of Israel's meant for evil against their little brother, God meant for good. That is actually Joseph's testimony. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter 50, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many, that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. It wasn't just, listen, God used Joseph and his wisdom, supernatural wisdom and dreams, not just to make sure that there was enough food so that his 75 relatives can come and be protected, but all of Egypt as well. And Joseph, when his brothers think that's it, Joseph's just guy second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, he's going to kill us because we've betrayed him so bad. Joseph says, no, don't worry. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph's being betrayed is what God used to save them and multiply them in Egypt. Listen, God used their failure to see his plan as the means to fulfill his plan and to keep his promises to them. Is that not mind-blowing to you? When, when Stephen is telling his religious guys, reminding them of this story, he's trying to get them to think about what was preached by Peter way back in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. Peter preaches, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see how Peter preached? Do you see what Stephen's getting to? He's wanting these religious people, these self-righteous, hard-hearted religious people to see your evil, your nonsense, your rebellion, your betrayal is what God has actually used to save you. That's grace. That's grace. If your view of God's grace is less than that, if your view of God's grace is less than you betraying God and God still choosing to love you, to send a son to die for you, and to bring you into his kingdom, you don't get grace. If you think God's grace is like, well, you're almost there. Here, let me help you across the line. You don't get grace. And Stephen's wanting these guys to get grace. So we go from the Joseph they betrayed to the Moses they rejected. How many of you guys have seen Prince of Egypt, the movie Prince of Egypt? Okay, a lot of you guys have. It's not bad, actually. It's a pretty good movie. Great graphics. Not, not super inaccurate. There's some bad stuff, but most of it's good. It's worth watching. So hopefully this, if you've seen that movie, this will become really familiar to you. Or if you read Exodus, even better. Acts chapter, or Acts verse 20, uh, chapter 7, verse 20. Stephen goes on, he says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Now we're going to see basically three sections. And, and basically Stephen kind of divides... 40 years, 40 years, 40 years about Moses' life. Here's the first 40 years. Moses was a beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up, in, up three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, that is, he was supposed to be killed, uh, Pharaoh's daughters adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians that he, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So he said, look, here's his life. Should have been killed. Providentially, he wasn't killed. He was a beautiful child protected by God. That's the first part of Moses, verse 23. And when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them and they were, as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, 
where he became the father of two sons. Now, Stephen's summing up the next 40 years of Moses' life. Uh, one one uh, Bible commentator said that uh, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years of his life realizing he was a nobody, and the last 40 years of life seeing how God likes to use nobodies. But what, what's interesting about this is if you read Exodus and the, and, and the story of Moses killing the Egyptian, you get more of a sense that Moses is really not doing something that's godly. Like he's just like, ugh. Uh, and he just kills somebody when no one's looking. Like he's really not some hero. But Stephen kind of presents him as a hero. Why? Stephen wants to show Moses as a type of the misunderstood hero that they've rejected. Verse 30. Now the, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. This is Moses, of course. And the flame of fire in the bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight And as he drew near to to look, there came the voice of the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God, uh, the Lord God of your father, sorry, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Now, as, as Stephen recounts all the stuff about Moses, this was probably a time in his speech where the Sanhedrin, the council where, that he's standing before, these religious leaders of Israel that he was standing before, it was probably at this point in the speech where they're going, okay, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, we like Moses. Okay, maybe he's not against Moses. All right. And they might have even kind of thought, okay, maybe, maybe this guy's not as bad as they're accusing him of. Well, then you get to verse 35. Because Stephen goes from describing Moses' life in these three 40-year sections to emphasizing Israel's rejection of Moses' leadership. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God has sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. What's Stephen saying? Stephen's saying, listen, don't you recognize our, our forefathers rejected Moses, even though he was chosen by God. And guess what? You just did it again with Jesus. You just did it again. Jesus talked about this. He predicted this is exactly what his people would do. Listen to this in Luke chapter 20. But Jesus looked directly at the religious leaders and he said, when, when, oh, I'm sorry, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And when he said it, they knew he was speaking about them rejecting him. This is why Stephen is preaching this. Stephen's not trying to be harsh, more harsh to these religious leaders as he is being to himself. He's trying to say, don't you get it? This is what we've done. God sends us people so we can know who he is, so we can know his will, so we can know him. And what do we do? We say, nah, I don't trust you. And we reject him. And then he switches from the Moses they rejected to the scriptures they twisted. You see, remember their accusation was this guy's speaking against Moses. And this guy, Stephen, he's, he's wanting us to change the customs that Moses gave us, which, by the way, 
weren't really customs Moses gave them, but their own interpretations of those customs and their own traditions. Traditions that, by the way, also kept these religious leaders rich. And so what happens in verse 37? Stephen says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18. Again, if you want to look this up later, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, to see the context when God said this to Moses. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. In other words, you guys are all into Moses. You're all into what customs, quote-unquote, God gave to Moses, this is what God said to Moses. What you're really looking for is another prophet, the final prophet, the prophet. So what happens? Stephen starts to get really pointed here. He says, our fathers refused to obey him. That's obey Moses. Or to obey God, sorry. But thrust him aside... And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, and this is Moses when he's up at Mount Sinai getting the law. Okay, this is Exodus 32. Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now, before I quote this in verse 42, I want you to recognize that what Stephen is is reminding them of is Exodus 32, and it's what the religious leaders and the rabbis of the day, and even to this day, began to call the unspeakable deed. The fact that when Moses goes up to get God's law, the very covenant that they would relate to God by, when he goes to do that, that the Israelites tell Aaron, hey, no, here's all our earrings, our gold earrings, make us a calf, and we'll bow down to it. And if you guys remember the story when we taught Exodus, what happened? Aaron says, here is Yahweh who delivers you from Egypt. See, here's the reality. They regularly distorted what God said about himself. This is probably the most common way We show our hard-heartedness. We distort what God says about himself. Now, in verses 42 to 43, Stephen's quoting the prophet Amos, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Again, you can look that up later. But he's quoting Amos, not because this is the only place where God tells his people, you've got to stop making counterfeit gods. It just exemplifies how often they did it. And it speaks to how the, the habit that, it, that began at, under Mount Sinai before the covenant continued in their hearts over and over and over again. Verse 42. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, that's a false god, and the star of your god, Rephim, another false god, and images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile for Babylon. Why did God punish his people? 
Why did God chasten them by sending them under this, to, to be enslaved by another nation again? Because they refused to believe that God is who he said he is. Now, as I say that right now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, yeah, oh man, I got to believe God's, he's way more holy than I think he is and he's, and he, he, God's way more stern than I think he is. And in some senses, that's absolutely true. But you know where we usually harden our hearts? We don't believe that God is holy and good. We see a conflict between his committed, compassionate, tender, gentle love and his perfect holiness. And there is no conflict in God. There's no division in God. You can't separate God into parts. He's one. And when we think of God the wrong way, when we twist the scriptures, it's usually because we want to forge a God of our own understanding. That's what Calvin said. The reformer John Calvin said, we, form, we forge a God in our hearts of our own understanding. We're like idol-making factories. This is what we do. But the scriptures, listen, the scriptures get twisted when we do this, but the scriptures, all the scriptures, ultimately point to Jesus. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, it says, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's a prophet. He's the prophet, yes, but more than the prophet. He's God the Son. He's the final and ultimate revelation of what God is like. And if you are, are forming in your mind, forging in your heart, a God that is nicer than Jesus, who would never tell, send anybody to hell, you're an idol worshiper. And if you're re refusing to believe that God has made himself known, you're an idol worshiper, even if you're an atheist. And God, in his compassion, sends people like Stephen to say, guys, wake up. Your hearts are hard. And God is still the same gracious God. He goes from the, the scripture that they twisted to the temple they misunderstood. Remember, they're accusing, falsely accusing Stephen of saying this temple should be destroyed. Stephen didn't say that. He may have quoted Jesus that he'd tear down this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days, but of course we know Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, wasn't he? But look what happens in verse 44. Stephen says, our fathers had the tent of witness. That's the tabernacle that we see in the Old Testament. The, that, that, that movable tent. The tent of witness in the wilderness, just as, he had, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make according to the pattern Moses had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua as they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who, had, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now, now in a very short amount of time, 
Stephen's summing up several hundred years of Israel's history. He said, you guys know this tent, this, this tabernacle that God called Moses to make by a very specific design? The author of Hebrews tells us it was designed from heaven, that God dwells where God dwells. He gave Moses some pictures, some ideas to say, I want you to make this movable tent that, that reflects my presence because God himself would, of course, dwell in that presence. But here's the, here's the idea. The purpose of the tabernacle was not to keep God in one place because God can't be kept in one place. But it was, listen, it was God going to be with his people wherever they go. Don't forget, in, 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 in Old Testament times, the common misunderstanding of gods, plural, was that there had to be multiple gods because those gods had to be stuck in a locality. So they worshiped the God of the hills or the God of the valleys or the God of the cows or the God of reproduction or the God of harvest or whatever the God it was. So if you were moved out of your land, you were moved away from your God. And the, one of the reasons God does this is to say, you can't move away from me. I'm with you wherever you go. Well, they didn't understand this. And so what ends up happening, of course, is that when they finally go into the promised land and they possess the promised land, David is moved and says, God, you've got to have a, I live in houses of cedar. I live in these really posh houses. You should dwell in a posher place than me. And God basically says, look, you're not going to do this. There's blood on your hands, but I'll let you gather the materials and I'll let your son Solomon do this. And when Solomon builds the temple, which is like a permanent tabernacle, when Solomon builds the temple, when he prays, he basically says, Lord, we know you don't dwell here only. We know that you're bigger than this. Now, what happens? Stephen quotes Isaiah, the prophet. And we see God speaking through the prophets to remind them that he's not stuck in a location. It says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? <laughs> see, when it comes to the temple or the tabernacle, and remember, this is the temple that they think Stephen's saying should be torn down. This is the temple where they think all worship needs to happen. The point is, God was not making a... They were, it was not them making a place for God. It was God making himself accessible to his people. And the tabernacle and the temple ultimately pointed to Jesus. Listen to this. This is John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. You guys probably know these verses. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking of Jesus, of course. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled. That's what the word means, dwelt. Literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to think about this. The temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple, had this place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence would dwell. He would manifest His presence. And, and basically, the only people who could go in there were, were the high priests once a year to make atonement for the people. And if they were, had any sin in their lives, they would they'd be dead. And it was to show how holy God's presence is. And what does God do with that holy presence? Why does he have this temple? So that when that, that presence is confined or is dwelt in the perfect human, we would know that this holy God 
is a God of holy love and wants us to know him, wants us to relate to him. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope as we're, as we're talking about this that you guys are seeing Stephen risking his life to help these hard-hearted religious people to understand God's grace towards them. Do you see this? That as he, listen, as he exposes the history of their people, Stephen's people, the religious people, Jewish leaders' people, they're all of the same heritage. They're all the same, not just spiritually, but even physically. He say, our people have always done this. And here's the thing you need to recognize. If you don't get anything else, get this. All people have done this. You've done this. I've done this. We harden our hearts towards God. We, we, we chuck aside His prophets. We twist His scriptures. We misunderstand what it means to have a relationship with Him. We've all hardened our hearts. I wonder, as Stephen was talking about the tabernacle here and, and the temple and, and quoting Isaiah 66, is, I wonder if at this point the faces of the religious leaders changed. You ever been in a conversation with somebody? Maybe you're trying to share Jesus with somebody and it seems to be going okay, they seem to be interested, and then you say something and you can see the rage begin to come in their face. And I wonder if, if, they, if he saw this. And I wonder if his heart so broke, he just said, I, I'm going to be as plain as I can be. Because what does he say? Verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as our fathers did, so do you. We've seen the temple they misunderstood. Now, we need to recognize the hearts they hardened. The hearts they hardened, they were hardened because they were resisting the Holy Spirit's work. Listen, if you're here today, I am absolutely convinced, 100% convinced by authority of what God says in His Word, by the fact that we prayed according to His Word, that he would do the work that only he can do, that work of conviction, that work of convincing, that work of revelation, that God is doing that right now by his Holy Spirit. And if you're still going, I don't want to believe in this, Jesus, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. You're hardening your heart. You need to know that. You know, I'm saying that out of grace. I'm saying that because God doesn't want you to resist him anymore. Look at verse 52. Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's speaking of Jesus. <coughs> Whom you have now <coughs> betrayed and murdered. You who receive the law as delivered by angels, you don't keep it. You received it, but you don't keep it. See, they were, they were, their hearts were hardened by the resistance of the Holy Spirit, but also by the refusing of the testimony of God's word. Serious question. Total serious question. What is it about this book that you don't believe? And why don't you believe it? I'm, I'm serious. Uh, you're, you're, you're looking at a cynic, man. I don't, I don't believe easily. I doubt and question everything. 
But you know what I, I've come to, to realize? <clears throat> what I've come to realize is that actually I, there's no reason for me not to trust the Bible. There's lots of reasons for me not to like it. It's not very flattering. What the Bible says about me and, and us as humans isn't very flattering. But there's no reason for me not to trust it. I found zero reason not to trust that this is actually God's testimony of His work through His people, that it's historically trustworthy, accurate, authoritative. No reason not to. If you have a reason not to, please come tell me. What are you refusing to believe? And do you realize yet that when you harden your heart, when I harden my hearts, we're actually resisting the one who so loves us? He loves us. He loves us. It's also important we recognize here that they are hardening their own hearts, not Stephen's. That Stephen is in this, he's before the Sanhedrin. This is like, if you can imagine, the most powerful, influential religious leaders of Christianity coming together in one room, 70 in one room, and they're all accusing you of heresy and that you should die for it. And then as you, as you share, you can see they're getting more angry. Wouldn't you be tempted just to go, forget you guys! <coughs> but as we'll see next time, that's not Stephen's heart. Stephen's heart is that they would know this God that they're resisting. It's also important for us to recognize, listen, all of our hearts are prone to this kind of hardness. Unless we are willing to respond to Jesus through his word, by his spirit. I wonder if how many of us are willing to be honest about how we've hardened our hearts this week. Where we've refused to believe that God is who he said he is and that he's done what he said he's done and will do what he said he will do. Where have we hardened our hearts? This doesn't end hopelessly. Because the God who exposes our hard hearts is also in that heart transplant business. He can change our hearts. He does change our hearts. Listen to this. It's our hard-heartedness, actually, is why we need to be together as often as possible. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 3. I'll close with this. Take care, brothers, the author writes, <coughs> lest there be found in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to follow, to follow away <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see that? Do you see how the author of Hebrews is saying, you know why we need fellowship? You know why we need to be together in a church that makes much of Jesus and sticks to the, the word and wants to love each other by the power of the Spirit? Do you know why we need that? Because all of us have hearts that tend to get hard. And how do we do this? How do we exhort each other? Do we say, ah, look out, hard heart, ah, watch out? No. We, we speak as sinners to sinners, as dying men to dying men, and we say, let's trust Jesus together. 